Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tim Freundlich to the podcast. Tim is head of Impact Assets, a non-profit financial services firm that focuses on improving the flow of capital into investments that deliver financial, social and environmental returns. Tim is a long-time innovator in new financial instruments in the social enterprise sector. He worked previously at Calvert Foundation for 12 years, where he conceived of and launched the Donor Advise Fund. He was also instrumental in building the $250 million community investment note with more than $1 billion invested in 300-plus non-profits and for-profits globally. Tim co-founded and serves as managing partner for Good Capital, that in addition to its flagship social enterprise expansion fund, founded the 2,500-person annual social capital markets conferences in San Francisco and four impact hubs in the U.S. Thank you very much, Tim, for taking the time today to speak to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great. So I'm really looking forward to having an opportunity to talk to you about the, a lot of the work you've been doing in financial innovation around impact investment and social innovation. Um, can you maybe just to begin, just talk a little bit about uh, maybe impact assets and, and what exactly you do? Sure. Impact assets is structured as a 501c3 public charity. So it's actually a nonprofit financial services firm. In the U.S., uh, we have offices in New York, D.C., and uh, San Francisco, which is where I'm located presently. And we do a number of things. Uh, the most obviously uh, uh, kind of scaled and uh, the one with the most track record is we run a donor-advised fund, which is a platform for philanthropic endowment management, so assets that are earmarked for charitable distribution eventually, but have uh, investment needs all along the way over time, we make that available in a sort of democratized solution that people all across the U.S. can access. And uh, we have about uh, 850 or so families and corporations who house their philanthropic endowment with us on one large asset management platform, uh, which is about $400 million at the moment and growing at about $100 million a year, uh, unless something <laughs> something happens one way or the other that, uh, to change that trajectory. And we do something pretty special, which is organize from the ground up across all asset classes, all different kinds of investment, uh, time horizons and risk profiles an impact investing set of solutions. So that was kind of the chief innovation of it was to build a, a group platform that would allow all the money from day one, once it's uh, once it's endowed, once it's given, to be invested in social and environmental impact and positive entrepreneurship, etc. So uh, that's what we have been doing for the last few years. This grew out of Calvert and Calvert Foundation uh, in the uh, in 2010-2011 and has been scaling nicely. And that's the chief core program that we have. Uh, we also do uh, some, uh, some investment notes, which are available for direct private investment as opposed to within the philanthropic endowment land uh, on sustainable agriculture and microfinance that we are testing out. And we have um, a, a pretty diversified portfolio uh, in those two groups um, doing mostly emerging markets investment of harvest finance for 
co-ops and small um, business and microfinance uh, in the microfinance note. Uh, and then the final activity that we're up to is really, uh, you could call it field building, but basically we maintain a set of collateral and, uh, and commitments to growing the field and understanding it, making it sensible to, to people, um, not just people we work with, but the broader market. And we have an annually published database called the Impact Assets 50, which is up online and searchable at impactassets.org.org. Um, and we publish that every year and we kind of scan the whole landscape of investment managers in the private debt and equity impact space and put up nice templated searchable uh, data sets around them so that people can really kind of compare them and look at them. It's not due diligence per se. It's really an entree point to, for people to kind of demystify the landscape. And then we have, in addition, a whole uh, set of issue briefs on particular areas of discernment or, you know, sort of interest areas where we deep dive with co-authors and do these, what we hope are somewhat approachable kind of plain English uh, sorts of writings that are also available on our website, um, free of charge to all comers. So that's, uh, so the donor advised fund, um, some impact investment strategies like notes and, and then the field building. Sorry, that was a little long winded, but that's, that's the, the, the scope. Yes, a, a very full plate there, uh, Tim. Um, and I, I, I'm keen and looking forward to talking to you about uh, this platform and how it works. Now, just uh, you, you mentioned the Impact Assets 50, and uh, I guess it's a, a unique uh, perspective on the uh, impact investment world. What are, do you say are a few of the key high level uh, figures here uh, to note about, you know, people say uh, you, you, you hear various uh, uh, levels of excitement about impact and investment you know that it's growing so fast and it's uh, it's very exciting and then others say but it's growing from a very small base and uh, what would you say are two or three uh, key uh, figures uh, key key data points to 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 kind of highlight what's what we think is happening or interesting about impact investment today and I think it's a it's a fair critique too to say you know it's like it's one thing to say oh twenty percent year over year compound annual growth rates and it's all very impressive uh, in terms of assets but uh, the reality is, is it's easier to grow when you're starting small, but it actually isn't small anymore. And uh, I think there is a bit of uh, growth that is due to better counting of what's already been going on. And that is, in my opinion, a, a quite fair critique. But anyway, you cut it over eight trillion dollars of the U.S. investable asset base is in some form of social environmental impact investing uh, definition. And that's significant. I mean, this is, this is, um, you know, more than 10% of, of all invested assets, um, quite a bit more. In fact, there's about 70, 70 trillion. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's growing also at a good clip. And we're certainly seeing that climate concerns and opportunities and, um, and sort of poverty alleviation and economic opportunity, you know, economic development opportunities seem to be the, the two big, uh, lobes of interest and uh, and activity, um, and at least in, you know from from our vantage point in the in the U.S., um, there's you know there's also just a a, a real uh, quickening of the mainstream entry, and that's something that I think has really changed in the last two to three years in particular, and even in the last twelve months in the U.S., we've seen Bain and Company come out with a four hundred billion. Um, 
a $400 billion, sorry, $400 million. I just gave them an extra zero there. <laughs> yes. Uh, or is it three zeros, actually? Yeah. Um, $400 million uh, private equity fund. You saw uh, the Pacific Group TPG come out with um, the, the RISE fund with a $2 billion, and that one is with a B, billion uh, dollar fund that uh, a lot of celebrities and mainstream uh, folks have participated in. So, you know, people are, it's really coming of scale. And I think part of what's driving that is a recognition of a track record that is really validating the whole space for the mainstream. And whether it's uh, the Domini investment, um, environmental social governance stock screens um, that have been beating and, and tracking the S&P 500 for the last 20 years uh, to good effect or or, or generation investments on uh, David Blood and Al Gore's uh, investment group that I, I think is actually based out of London primarily, um, been in their offices there, that outperforms uh, their benchmarks by like 500 basis points, 5% a year for the last decade. Um, you know, there's, there's real credible track record and people are seeing tons of climate risk that needs to be mitigated and tons of opportunity on alternative mm. energy and solar distributed energy systems. So that's the kind of stuff that's driving. And those are the numbers that we're kind of wrestling with in the marketplace over here. Great. Now, I spoke to David actually uh, not long ago about the work that they're doing and uh, very, very interesting. Um, and they're a very uh, eye-popping eye uh, kind of figures, aren't they? And it's uh, uh, quite a phenomenon. Now, I, I have a particular interest in the, I guess, the more social entrepreneurs side of things you know at that s smaller uh, scale and size and not necessarily of course um, and I'm just wondering how much of that money do you think is is would you say is traditional you know looking for the kind of traditional returns which we've come to expect from you know financial in finance financial uh, in general you know VC or, or even private equity um, but maybe just apply to a different sector or a different niche and how much is actually getting into the hands of, I guess, what you know, Harvey Coe talks about, you know, the, the pioneer, you know, helping helping uh, social entrepreneurs over the pioneer gap. How much of how much money is getting into the hands? How, how much concessionary finance would you say there is, and that you can talk about whether you think that's important or not? Because I, I know there's a discussion about about it's important that uh, to have not just concessionary finance, or, or you know, that, that there's expectations about uh, market related returns. But I guess the question there is how much is getting into the hands of the pioneers, the smaller social entrepreneurs, the people taking the more risks, and 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 is that important? Yeah, I I mean personally, and and from Impact Assets point of view. I think it is very important. Uh, we tend to be reflective of the appetites of, you know, almost a thousand different answers to this question, that being those those 850 plus clients uh, and wealth managers that we're working with. So, uh, you know, I don't in practice get very um, prescriptive about these kinds of questions um, in terms of the, our answer to it, because we have to be uh, sort of innately pluralistic, if you will, um, just by the virtue of what we are as a platform, an intermediary uh, for a lots of different theses uh, or thesi in this case. Um, so, you know, on, on the one hand, I'll, I, that's my caveat, but then I'll just dive in and say that, um, I mean, we're seeing a ton of appetite in what I think is squarely that sort of activity that you're referencing. I mean, to put some numbers on it, we're doing two private debtor equity deals a week or more. And we're doing like 10 a month. Um, and for clients that are uh, 
specifically trying to reach those emergent social entrepreneurs. Those are, some of those are loans to nonprofits. Some of them are you know convertible notes into for-profits. But this is early seed stage and gap financing and early growth capital for social enterprises all over the U.S. and, in fact, all over the world. Uh, we're doing... I think up to, we've already done 65 deals this year, and there's probably another 10 before year end. People love to get that last one in before Christmas, (laughs) um, or at least before New Year's Eve. Um, So, you know, it's, uh, we're seeing a a ton of throughput and our asset base is very unlike a Ford foundation or a, you know, a fidelity charitable gift fund or, uh, or even a charity aid foundation over on your side of the pond, um, where, we, we not only are we generally screening out the stock and bond, you know, malfeasance and looking for good practice and governance and diversity and supply chains in our stock and bonds activity and our sort of quote unquote more market rate activity, but we're arraying a whole range of um, of private debt and equity options in addition to those direct deals that we're doing every week for clients, um, different private debt and equity venture funds. And I'd say, I mean, for about half of our asset base, close to it, it's about 40% of our asset base is is very much directed in the ways I think that you're alluding to. And whether that's microfinance, whether that's the sustainable agriculture and and uh, and uh, the cooperatives and structures around the world that are doing that, affordable housing, uh, or these direct ventures that are doing sustainable, uh, really great, you know, strategies that are um, going after intractable problems and and trying to meet them through innovation with economic upside. I mean, I don't think that it's very easy to create a bright line about what's concessionary and what's not uh, in our clients' minds. I think they're being driven by their you know, the, the, the good and the bad, you know, like trying to mitigate things that aren't working and trying to create opportunity and are very much coming at it from a passionate point of view. Um, maybe that's because we're assets that have been first and foremost given away to eventually go to charity, you know, like a foundation's assets. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, I think, you know, one person's uh, gap filling social purpose, you know, dressed up philanthropy kind of investment that is definitely not a market rate investment from their point of view. Somebody else might be saying, hey, you know, this looks like a great opportunity, uh, you know, serving the base of the pyramid and the two billion people living less than four dollars, you know, whatever segment it is. Um, and I think we actually can do really pretty well while doing good. Um, not to mention, what does market rate mean anyway? I mean, you look at 2008 and, you know, the you know, things that are supposedly so, you know, blue chip and ring run by algorithms and then they blow up in your face and you lose 40 percent of your asset base in like two days, you know. So it's like I, I think our folks um, over here that we're, we're dealing with uh, in, in our client base are very much um, – of a few minds on the on the question of even where the bright line is, much less particular deals falling into one or the other bucket. I know that that's a little bit of a of a, of a meandering response, but uh, you know it is it is sort of a nuanced question. 
Yes, no, I, I, I guess there's a, uh, as many different answers, as you say, as, as investors in one sense. And yet, at the same time, um, I speak to many uh, social entrepreneurs that, that, that find it difficult to raise capital. And I guess right. it's a little bit like uh, in, in venture capital, you all hear this question, well, uh, you know, are there enough good deals out there? Or is, is there you know, enough capital? Or is it, you know, what, what's, the, what's the root of the issue? And I guess... Just to yeah. cut in and be blunt for a second, I and mean, when we put in, when we put up a private equity fund on our platform for people to, you know, allocate to uh, at, at their, uh, you know, interest, we do, we do make an attempt to characterize it. So not only are we saying, you know, here's its, uh, here's its impact thesis, <clears throat> here's its time horizon and liquidity and features. We also, we do make a determination and say, you know, this is, this is sort of below market or near market or at market. Uh, because we think that's useful. I mean, a lot of it's about expectations. And so, so we are trying to kind of create some technical exactness around this, even if that's not that exact, but like, like at least bucketing stuff. Um, it's just that then our clients come at it and they have their own point of view, regardless of what we say. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you do feel, I mean, your experience, as you say, is, is, is a reflection of the kinds of, uh, the, the, the structure of the fund you have and the expectations that maybe foundations have about this money in the first place. But uh, more generally as well, you you get a sense that there is a, a serious momentum in the, in, in, in the way uh, investors are willing to uh, trade off. And I know that's not always the case. And, and, and it's one of my more exciting areas in investment that, you know, sustainability actually generates, you know, very uh, uh, higher financial returns. But, you know, we're talking about the earlier stage. They're willing to say, well, this is impact led and I am willing to, you know, actually say I'm modifying my expectations. I'm happier to, you know, I'm happy to have a, a lower set of expectations. As you say, these are, you know, uh, difficult to pin down, but are willing to trade off for impact. Right. Yes. I mean, I think there's a couple, a couple ways to go at it. I mean, one is people are saying, I'm willing to increase my expectations because if you think about it, the whole spectrum is, as we're working with is from grant making yes. to quote unquote market rate investing. So if you come at it from the other direction, I mean, we're giving away $30 million a year. We did 6,000, 6,500 grants to charities all over the world, mostly in the U.S., just last year or this year. Um, and, you know, so from that point of view, it's like you you tell me I can take people out of poverty and empower women with, you know, financial inclusion and starting their own businesses and investing in their family's education in the developing world. And I can have a pretty stable uh, you know, return um, on capital and get my money back and have be- basic liquidity in a microfinance pool. And I'm there right next to that. I'm giving away money where I get nothing back. Like that's a bu- an above market. You know, it's like if you come at it from that way, that can be really exciting to people economically in addition to the impact of those assets. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I and mean, the other thing is people really are willing to take a uh, a haircut for, for for value received. I mean, people are willing to pay more for the same basic functional element in consumer society all over the place. And all we have to do is look at our lives and luxury brands and things that we do with money that make zero sense, like paying for a handbag with a label on it three times as much as the same thing functionally right next to it or 10 times as much like that's a form of trade-off that people are doing for some sort of psychic payoff. Um, and 
Uh, and that's, you know, one way to look at it. We've also done tons of survey work in the um, sustainable, sustainable brand uh, context in the U.S. where they ask consumers, like, how much more will you pay for a socially responsible product if it looks like this, right next to the same commodity food product on the, on the shelf? And there, there's a lot of different answers, but the, the, the magic number seems to be like 15%. <laughs> People will pay 15% more for, um, for kind of a social um, wrap to something as long as the quality is there. And, um, and I, you know, again, I think it's highly variant, but obviously by consumer and product category and things like that. But there's lots of correlatives to this um, where people are willing to make trade-offs in kind of hard economic terms for soft value that really is not practical. And I think that although I don't hear people kind of drawing that comparison in that often, I think it's, I think it's, um, you know, to my mind, uh, intuitively a, a good one. Well, that's very interesting. I just one last question that I mentioned. You mentioned this, this uh, getting better returns, um, doing good. Um, how does that work in the sense that, you know, traditional model of finance, risk and finance, you know, better returns, higher risk. How does it work that you can put money into a project which, you know, inherently uh, must be riskier, um, you know, uh, hasn't maybe got a track record of even having a you know business models or having, you know, uh, people talking about economic economic returns, that kind of thing, you know, moving into whole social areas and yet generating, you know, the kind of uh, uh, returns or the kind of uh, package that, that you mentioned at the beginning, which, which uh, you know, you say are, are attractive to investors. Say that you have to say. Let's step off of that for a second. What, yes, you, you, you. I think I, I, I couldn't uh, exactly summarize the, the what you were saying at the beginning about the microfinance uh, bit. You know that the people were interested in these packages where they were comparing to grants. They were comparing the ability to invest in financial instruments that were doing good, that were generating returns, that were you know all of these great qualities. And I'm just curious as to how, how, how that can arise in, in situations where, you know, which are challenging market conditions. Um, how, how, you know, why is it not the case that these should be riskier um, and therefore, you know, more problematic? Do, do, do you get what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get at there? Sort of. I think the, I think that the, you know, the situation has to be assessed like in every subcategory and every you know every fund man management structure and and um and the thesis that they're trying to attack in terms of you know the impact in addition to the financial and so it's it's really hard to have blanket statements around sure. things that people it's like the what is impact investing return well that's like yes. saying what is the investment market return yes absolutely yeah, I mean, yeah. honestly it's it's just a lens, right? Yes. And it's so variant. It's like, are we in subprime mortgages? Are you in, you know, big company stocks? Are you in, uh, you know, a, a treasury bill issued by the government with quote unquote zero risk? So, I mean, every situation is different. Um, but I kind of organize things into two buckets. One is things that are gap driven primarily versus things that are opportunity driven primarily. Uh, that doesn't mean that opportunistic strategies that are uh, aggressive can't also be, you know, filling in around some perceptual gaps in the market. But there seem to be sort of two driving primary um, motivations in the, the the strategies and the you know the enterprises that we're financing, and it's it's this kind of like is there this 
gap that somebody's trying to go in and fix first and foremost, and then figure out what opportunity and business models and economic sustainability and scale is there because of a, and it, you know, a passionate kind of practical need to, to gap fill, or is it more of a chasing an opportunity? And I think, um, you know, I think, you know, sort of the clean tech movement might be an example of, of more of that. Whereas, um, you know, initially microfinance might have been more of a gap strategy, although now you could sort of make the argument that it's growing up and becoming just a financial services opportunity and it's kind of mainstreamed and there's plenty of players in there, etc. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Now, I want to talk about this platform that you have. And you mentioned that it's a key part of what you do. And it's this one platform that allows different kinds of assets and so forth. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the rationale for developing this and what makes it a little bit different and why why you think it's such an exciting uh, idea? Yeah, so the idea is everybody can be the Gates Foundation or the Ford Foundation. So in, in, in the States, you can set up an account with as little as $5,000 and actually get your own little personal foundation. Or it could be $5 million. I mean, and we have all along that spectrum um, hundreds and hundreds of accounts. We even have some larger than, than million. I mean, we have tens of millions of, of dollars-sized uh, accounts. But basically, whatever the size that you then have access to a whole range of um, asset class buckets and different strategies. And some of them are pools that are diversified and already put together for you. Other ones you can pick a la carte, like, ooh, I want to do microfinance in the emerging markets, or I would like to invest in a specific company or type of company uh, through a venture fund. Um, and so we basically organized this uh, both sets of, of prepackaged um, diversified pools that we arrange with our consultants and staff and investment committees, or also a la carte options that people can pick and choose. And there's not one or the other. You can use multiple of all of them, um, and it can it evolve over time. So everybody suddenly has this like really deep impact investment capability that you know honestly even these massive foundations don't have um and we get the we give the scale of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds and hundreds of clients all pooled together to facilitate that um and create the kind of capability set at a professional level that people can organize their micro or their quite large asset base with us um which is eventually going to go not to buy them you know, an electric car or a, or that one of those handbags I was mentioning, but <laughs> rather to um, to you know eventually go to charity or 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 some some you know altruistic purpose. So uh, it's it is a certain sort of money, and um, and and that's the context that we're dealing with. People are sending off thousands of grants a year out of this uh, asset base, and we're funding all these charitable purposes, but meet in the in the interim and all along the way all of the money has the ability to be flexibly and very customizedly put into these kinds of buckets across private debt and equity and direct company and loans to nonprofits, investments in companies, and also those environmental and socially screened mutual fund sets or stock and bond sets. Um, so that's you know that's that's kind of how it works and what we do is we publish options up to it that come through our machine, uh, you know, and we do diligence them and we, you know, look at this and that and we talk about what's uh, exciting and 
legitimate about it and we put it up there and people um, either will get exposure to a strategy because we've stuck it into one of those diversified pools or if it's up on one of these a la carte menus they can go ah i'd love to put you know x amount of money into that one and so people are making those choices and we're scaling and there's more and more and more activity going on um now that we're we're sort of a full-fledged uh out of our our startup mode uh, obviously uh, now pushing six years right right now the donor advice fund can you just talk a little bit about how that actually works and why it's it's such a a good structure um, for impact investing yeah right and this is um like the charity aid foundation in the uk yeah uh, a well-established uh, kind of community foundation where it, it, it was it was structured uh, originally and quite a long and back in the 20 1920s I believe 1930s in the in the U.S. is the first ones was set up in New York um, and it is uh, a way to allow you know the mass affluent of of the country to be like the Rockefellers of the country you know it's 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 a way to kind of democratize. Uh, strategic family philanthropy over time without all without the the number of zeros it is particularly used to take to yes. set up now technology yeah. enablements have been driven down for private family foundations but private family foundations even if you can do them relatively small you've got to do tax returns and have law you know tax preparers and you can't be anonymous and you don't and you kind of are limited by your scale of what you can do and whereas the donor advice fund allows people to bulk up and be part of something bigger than themselves literally and figuratively um and uh and really punch like like a big private foundation in terms of capabilities and quality and so uh there are hundreds of these set up in the u.s the market is 85 billion dollars um, so smaller than the private foundation world at probably 700 billion, um, but it's growing really fast. 23% compound annual growth rate. Uh, in that case, it's the fastest growing vehicle. Yes, because it started smaller, but it's made, it's sustained. I mean, it is, it's, it is big. Um, and in fact, Fidelity, uh, you're not supposed to name your competitors, but I'll, I'll do it. Fidelity is <laughs> coming up on $20 billion, just one structure. Um, we're coming up on half a billion, so we're like one fortieth the size of Fidelity. But you know, we have we we have designs on them. Um, small is beautiful too. At yes. any rate, uh, <laughs> there's 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 literally almost three hundred thousand of these uh, individual accounts set up across all of those hundreds of donor advised funds, eight hundred and fifty of which are ours. Right. Now, and when you're talking about the platform, what's different here, Tim, in, in terms of compared to maybe other ones? You said this flexibility. Is it uh, something that's, that, that gives when, when a, a donor is uh, waiting or is made a decision but uh, not, not, not intending for this money to reach its ultimate destination for maybe five years or seven years or something like that? Can you just talk a little bit through how that works? Yeah, I mean, I could just give it as a, as a use case. You know, let's say I've opened up a twenty five thousand dollar or or so uh, account. It's that's on the smaller end of of our average, but it's you know perfectly um, good example. And so I've gotten some windfall maybe from work or a sale of a small business, um, and suddenly I. I have for tax purposes, uh, you know, I, it would be a good year for me to give away a little chunk of money. So they, so the person opens up a $25,000 account and yet I have no idea actually where I'm going to give away this money. And I would like this to last me for a while. Cause maybe for me, 
relatively, that's quite a bit of philanthropy. Like I've maybe been giving away a couple thousand dollars a year, for example. And so whether or not I'm going to draw this out 10 years, maybe it's certainly going to last me a few years. And I probably want to think about what I'm going to do because it's kind of a step function more than I've used in the past or done in the past. So, so that's the nice thing. I get my tax break today, like on December, you know, 11th. 2017, uh, right before the end of the year, I get to count it this year, and then it's sitting there. And so then I go to um, the platform and I go, okay, let's see, I probably am going to want to give away at least a few thousand dollars every year over the next five years. And um, But I also would like to take some time and maybe make a, a one large grant at the end of that, um, that I, so I don't need, so I don't need you know, any particular liquidity other than maybe 10% of it all along the way. And then I'd like it at the end. So then you sort of approach it just like with the family, you're planning your, 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 your regular assets. You go, okay, so what should I do with the, you know, the few thousand bucks a year I need to be able to get at. So then you, I would go and, and look for a relatively liquid, low risk, stable pool that I could put some of the money in that was doing microfinance and community development in our case, you know, community development and, um, and sustainable agriculture, like, and, and find, uh, one of our options there that would give me a nice stable return and that I'd be able to every year be able to take a, you know, a couple thousand dollars out of, uh, to make some grants to the stuff that I have been doing to sort of maintain that. But then maybe I'd also take a good chunk of it, say $10,000 and do something that's more, you know, more illiquid, longer term, a little crazier on the end of the spectrum, something I'm passionate about, maybe technology for good. One of these venture funds that's doing early stage, um, entrepreneurial venture investing and know that I'm probably not going to see any liquidity on that for a number of years, but it's okay because I'm doing my regular grant making with the, my, with my more liquid pool. And so that's, you know, again, there's 850 answers to the, to the yes, example, yes. but that's a, a perfectly reasonable one. Yes. Well, it sounds very interesting that, it, it, that this liquidity exists in these different kind of asset classes in the impact investment. Is this something relatively new? No, I mean, only as new as microfinance and community development finance, uh, which is measured in decades. Um, yes. But what has happened is it's been kind of professionalized and scaled so that there are um, not necessarily secondary markets, although in some cases in a limited way there are, but more just there's so many facilities out there that uh, and different structures that people can ladder things and create pools that do have a lot more liquidity and match maturities or expected you know liquidity requests to stuff if you think about it. You know, it's like if you go and buy a bunch of certificates of deposit, um, at the first year you have to buy a three, a six, a nine, and a 12 month to have an option every three months coming due, right? Without a penalty. But as you grow through the year, by the end, if you keep buying them every three months, you can buy one year CDs and then you'll still have an option every three months in the second year. So that's, you know, in, in some ways, that's a simplistic example of the kinds of things that go on as people start creating these really sophisticated, laddered um, pools uh, that are providing debt into relatively mature, understandable markets with lots of absorptive capacity. And they're managing that so that when investors, although at any given point, you'd be like, how can that investor get that money out of those you know, fair trade co-ops in the developing world growing honey and co cocoa or whatever the <laughs> heck they're doing. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's 
not that complex. Like you're organizing a really diversified pool with a diversified set of investors and you're laddering things and having lots of different, you know, moments every month and every quarter where there is liquidity to do. And so that you can match it to investors needs if they have it. And if they don't, you just continue on with your laddered strategy and at scale and over time, um, that creates, uh, structures that are really, really, um, accessible to a much wider integration into the day-to-day and we've found i mean i think that that the private debt market for impact is just is you know maybe it's not as sexy as the venture capital but in terms of impact and in terms of its functional integration into asset bases that really work and its risk profile um it's uh it's such a great tool uh, for the world and for our clients uh, to really reach very specific credible impact strategies, but also to work with their day-to-day needs as an asset base. Very interesting. Very interesting. You mentioned the ability for small, uh, for just for general, the, the mass affluent or just generally people to, to you know, as it were, act as a small kind of board foundation and so forth, you know, that, that idea that have their own little, uh, you know, fund. Um, now, I guess the foundations traditionally have been more grant oriented, although I know there's you know, big changes going on there with the, you know, PRIs and MRIs and things related in that that, that whole area. But uh, to what extent, and I don't know, again, it's, it's probably horses for courses and there are many Many, as many different answers but uh these the, the donors that the at the moment to what extent are they how much of this money would you say is generally uh intended for grants and how much of it would you say is is um looking at a higher risk or or looking at uh, making uh, returns yeah i mean in the aggregate we're giving away about 10 percent of our asset base every year so that's one answer is people have kind of a cadence in the aggregate of one out of $10 in this asset base per year. But, you know, over 10 years, they will give away whatever 100% of that asset base is on whatever point we're talking about it. Obviously, we're growing. So that is a little, you know, a little bit in in constant motion. But but then we have returns. uh, And uh, people are also adding more money every year, too. Um, So between the returns and on average in the market, across all the different kinds of things we're doing, uh, which have been are generally over time positive and the fact that people are contributing more because this is a bit more of a, of a checkbook for them, right? It's not just like one time thing, although that can be the case for certain, for certain folks, uh, for a lot of folks, they're adding to it a bit when things happen on the year to year basis. And so they tend, that tends to match or even, um, you know, increase uh, the year-over-year asset base of even an existing clients at any given point of assessing it because then we're also going out and finding new clients, which is growth uh, separate from that. So, you know, on the one hand, people are giving away a, a, a hefty portion, but a small, you know, relatively small minority every year. Um, but in the end, all of these assets have been donated, have put been put to the to the public good, right? They've gotten their tax break. They set up their personal foundation, their donor advised fund with us uh, at day one. And maybe there's another day, you know, a year later where they add to it, whatever. Uh, But regardless, it's all going to end up eventually going to grant making. Uh, They can't take it out to buy that electric car or or Gucci handbag. (laughs) So they're, they're going to do, they're going to do it, but we are attracting an increasingly interesting set of folks I will say that are really, really 
turned on by this impact investing idea and this measurability and accountability and you know sustainability of these business models and entrepreneurial activities that are changing the world and in that value proposition are finding a whole different kind of ongoing edification or purpose other than the grant making. I mean, so we do have clients that literally are setting up evergreen perpetual pools of investments for good um, that have not so much appetite for grant making, um, although they certainly do some. Um, And again, that's not the the norm, but that is definitely a use case uh, amongst our 850, a subset of them where they really are interested in, in more of an evergreen endowment for good uh, that is invested and reinvested and reinvested over uh, theoretically generations um, that may not be giving that much away uh, to charity. Right, right. And and how significant are the millennials here? They're significant. I mean, the, certainly that's where we're skating to. Uh, the puck that we are skating to is <laughs> looking at the, the 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 largest generational you know, wealth transfer in history, 40, 50 trillion dollars in the next 20 years is going to get moved. Um, and a lot of it's going to end up with millennials and millennials, uh, they get it, you know, they're much more integrated in terms of their values and consumerism and investments and jobs and social life than previous generations, according to, you know, the, the research that we've seen in our experience. Um, and, you know, in terms of direct, questioning of their interest and impact there's sort of like a super majority of them will actually say yeah i get it i want it um generation x or the baby boomers you ask them you do not get those numbers <laughs> even after them being, being around it a lot longer yes um, yes but millennials are they get social entrepreneurship they get purpose in business 92 percent of millennials will say say in one survey i, I read um, you know mainstream one was uh believe that business and purpose should be this, you know, integrated like that, that companies should integrate purpose and values into that. And it's, it's not, I mean, why wouldn't you want that? But that's a really high number compared to previous generations. And it's indicative of where they want to work, what, who they want to buy from and what they want to invest in, obviously. Yes. Very, very exciting. Now, John, I want to talk about your custom investments and, and give, give me some examples. Talk a little bit about that and maybe some examples of social enterprises you're supporting in this way. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, where do you want to start? I mean, I'm <laughs> looking at a, a list here of 65 just this year that we've done. Um, I really like uh, one story, uh, Beyond Meat. It's a meat alternative, uh, soy-based uh, how do you fill the next two billion? How do you feed the next two billion people? Right. Yes. Um, so, what is a custom house. investment? Sorry, what what is it in the first place? You just explain that, maybe. Yeah. Well, this, so, a custom investment is is an investment that's driven by one or more clients' interests as the motivation, and then we, you know, we do our, uh, you know, our, our our assessment of it, do the transaction, and. Um, and actually become the investor of record in the company. Um, and so this is actually a referenceable client that initiated this uh, request, which is the founder of Honest Tea, Seth Goldman, yes, one of I, my favorite I, I clients. Can, I, I, I interviewed um, Seth, yes. Yeah. 
and he sees a lot of amazing entrepreneurs, as you might imagine, running around the world, being a brand ambassador for for Honest Tea all these years, um, and building the company, which had a huge liquidity event where it sold to Coca Cola over a couple of years, and he created a donor advised fund with us um, as at, with his founder stock. Um, to basically, he's a perfect example of somebody whose primary primary motivation, I would say, is the pursuit of paying it forward to the next entrepreneurs coming online. And so this was a young company that he got really excited about. Um, and we, um, you know, did our work up on it and we actually had some other clients, uh, other donor advised funds on our platform participate, uh, at a couple of different levels, um, over the years, last few years, last three years. And, um, and they are in whole foods all across the U S and are, uh, Tyson Foods, a big publicly traded diversified ag company, you know, food food company in the United States, uh, just led their last round with a, I think like twenty million dollar investment. Um, so they, you know, they they started off as a very early kind of startup, passion based entrepreneurial venture, but I'd say they're you know an example of of an opportunity driven venture. I mean, they 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 really see there it, it doesn't take a um, a rock, it might take a rocket scientist to come up with the <laughs> with the uh, mouth feel of the burger alternative that's based on soy meat, whatever. But to see the opportunity of the population growth globally and the fact that that meat is and um, is really really tough to pencil economically at scale. Um, it's very carbon and water intensive. It's very subsidized currently, um, and and it. It doesn't scale as well as as the as the world's population seems to be scaling. Um, so at any rate, so th- that's that's an example of one um, we were involved in this year uh, again uh, a follow on investment. But we have invested in uh, impact hubs around the United States, for example. And I know you have three in, of those in London, in Westminster, um, and Kings Cross, and also. Uh, I think up near the Angel Tube yes, Station, is yes, it? Yes. Um, but this is an amazing uh, social uh, sort of social club meets co-working. It's uh, you could call it the we work for you know the social entrepreneur set <laughs> globally, uh, very bottom up, uh, working across thirty countries. Uh, but it's it's very indigenously translated and locally owned. So each one, each city, or even each hub within a city across all of these. Um, I think there's almost a hundred of them open around the world now, uh, are their own little ventures. Some of them are nonprofits and they take loans. Other ones are for profits. And we've had a number of clients, um, sponsor or, or support through investment loans or equity, uh, their favorite city in the United States, um, uh, as an investment. And, you know, I think that's an example of, especially when it started of being a gap. I mean, no one had heard of coworking. It was a new kind of idea. Um, it wasn't really it, it was really about the need to connect people in a confusing, fragmented market so that they could change the world better together. I mean, that's why the Impact Hub, you know, that we're better together. And so that was, I think, um, right. you know, yes. a great example of, yes. of something that yes. a lot of people in different markets have heard of. Yes. And how did those, and then th- this is your, the Impact Assets team bring these ideas or, or you know, pr- present these ideas to the donors? Is, is, how, how does yes. it work? That, so custom investments work very client driven. So one or another or a set of clients will have a, have something that they've run across or that they are passionate about. Bring an idea to us and say, "Can is this a re- viable structure? Can you can can you look at it and 
I'd like to, assuming it all looks okay, do some amount of money. Um, and so that's very client directed or client recommended, if you will, in terms of the sourcing, although we do add value to it on top, of course. Um, and then what we're trying to figure out, and, and, and honestly, this is a bit aspirational still, though we have done it anecdotally, is, okay, well, when something has a lot of absorptive capacity and it's a credible opportunity that is being run by really cool social entrepreneurs, whether it's market rate or not, is not my point, but that it is a highly credible, well-structured venture, um, even if it's an early stage one in some cases, in many cases, uh, how do we invite others to participate along with that recommender? Um, And so we're trying to figure out how to do that. We know how to do it. It's like, how do you do it without a lot of reputational risk and dragging people into deals that then blow up in your face? Because if you do enough of these deals on the edgy end of the spectrum, guess what (laughs) happens? They do go out of business. And if they don't, you're doing something different than what you think you're doing. I mean, (laughs) why should it be any easier to succeed as a social venture um, working in a gap in the market than it should be as a regular venture in a non-impact, you know, uh, kind of area. Because guess what? It's not easier, and those conventional ventures blow up every single. You do you do ten investments as a venture capitalist in the early stage. You might even not get one that's still alive. They need to do twenty or thirty to get a couple home runs. Yeah. Um, and and, uh, and in our case, maybe home run is defined differently, but we see home runs too. Some of them are economic, some of them are impact, um, some of them are both. And uh, so, you know, we're, we we do have a lot of we take a lot of care in terms of how we invite people in, as opposed to our active fund platform where we are looking all across the options at any given point and doing full diligence and publishing an a la carte um fund you know a fund that's available a la carte if you will um to our to our folks um every quarter we're putting a new a new private debt or equity impact fund uh up on the platform or even two per quarter i think in our, at our new run rate this in 2018 it'll probably be more like that um and that we're we're widely publishing we're holding briefing calls and so there's some middle ground between those two extremes um and we're we're sort of developing capabilities and protocols to to deal share uh in that in that middle space uh selectively about while still having an attention to quality control and reputational risk um so that that that's a lot to be written over the next couple of years but that's where we're going Right. Sure. Yes. It sounds very interesting and uh, I think very exciting area. Now, you've just published a, a, a new book, your co-author of the Impact and Impact Assets Handbook of Investing. Now, why this book now and, 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 and what is it about? I mean, I, I know what it's about. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the key yeah. uh, uh, topics you, you're focused yeah, on? You, in can, this? you can get this on Amazon. It's actually published by Anthem Press over there in the UK. Um, the, uh, the, the, the why and the um, and the now answer is, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of demonstrated appetite. We've been talking about it. Everybody's reading about it. It's, it's like everybody wants to do it. Or, you know, but the reality is, is not that many people are really doing it. Why? Because their financial advisors don't know their elbow from their nose on this stuff. Generally speaking, that's going to change, but it's going to change over years. And it certainly is not the case now where your average financial advisor is like up to speed on all the cool spectrum of things you can do to match your passion uh, to and, and world changing attitudes to your asset base. Um, and there's not a lot of um, available, accessible product and, and, and 
you know, in, in the client base of the world. So what the handbook really was, uh, is doing is, is kind of approaching the, how do you do this toolkit? Um, and making it actionable and really, you know, much to a much broader audience. That was kind of how we approached it. And we, we partnered with a lot of, uh, cool folks in the industry, practitioners to write some, we hope again, plain English sorts of, um, chapters, uh, co-authoring them. So I, I, you know, worked on a couple chapters and, um, we edited the whole thing. Jed Emerson, who's, uh, our, um, a senior fellow with us, uh, did a great job kind of pulling it all together. And we had some staff work on certain stuff. We, um, we also though brought in folks from the outside to, uh, to put together again a, a kind of a toolkit of approaches and uh, and you know so it's less about the why should you do this yes yeah. intellectual argument because I feel like that's been made yes I mean you can decide you don't care about it fine but you can't say there's not track record and there's not an intellectual approach to why the, why you should integrate value and values into investment strategies across the whole spectrum it's there it's accessible so we spent less time on that because that was last year that was last decade honestly my my world but um uh and more about the how-to because people really are ready and they're frustrated by the lack of clear clear actionability uh, and the lack of clear advice they're getting from their financial advisors. And I will say, though, that one thing that really is changing in the U.S. at least, and I, I'm interested in how it is over there, is financial advisors and wealth advisor firms really are starting to to not just like be interested and talk about getting it, you know, maybe starting to think about this. They're really starting to jump in because because they're getting client um you know, they're getting clients walking out the door when they don't have an answer to this. And so, you know, we also had an eye towards that. We wanted to, you know, have something that was approachable for, for financial advisors and their clients to read and, and to feel like, oh, okay, I could do this. I could do that. So that's, that was kind of what it's about. And, um, and what's coming, uh, it's, it seems to be very well received. We just, um, just published it last month. Right. And it's for, um, it covers some of the ground for those new to impact investing, but presumably also does it, does it have a information for experienced impact investors? Yeah, some of the chapters go a little deeper and, you know, probably, you know, are a little more sophisticated in terms of their, their scope and depth. Um, so there's something for everyone. But but generally, I mean, we wanted it – folks who are really deeply into this probably don't need the handbook, right? You know, they, they, they're doing it. They're writing the handbook every day. So um, it's it's meant for, you know, folks who are, are trying to get clear about uh, a set of approaches um, are probably at the f- more front end of their um, their uh, approach. Right. What's on the mind now, Tim, of your clients regarding charitable giving? And I know there's a very big uh, tax bill um, sitting somewhere in uh, the, the Houses of Congress in the United States um, as we speak. Well, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and also people haven't even processed what they think might be the changes coming out of much less the yes. fact that who knows if they'll stick or what other changes because they're going to they're going to amend and, and try to fix this whenever you do something this is all over the media this fast yes the holes that you're going to be able to drive trucks through are going to be holes you can drive trucks through yes. um so there's uh there's definitely going to be a lot of um i mean there's a lot of uncertainty i think I've run across um, clients who are who are telling us, "Oh, we're sending you some money because at least we know the situation today, and we don't know what it's going to be on January first plus." Yeah. So we'd rather get 
get some more money in there now, lest things kind of turn into a fiasco. Um, and or we expect our tax treatment or situation to probably change for the worse and make charitable giving less attractive. So there's there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, a- agitation and concern. Um, and I think it's accelerating, if anything, the move of, of assets to uh, charitable purpose before year end in the U.S. Right, right. That's interesting. Now, what's next for impact assets, Tim? Next few years, what, what, what's your aspirations? Yeah, I, I alluded to it in that uh, last uh, set about the, you know, sort of how do these custom deals work. Creating a really fluid and thrilling environment uh, and capability sets that allows people to source and participate and share passion, passionate, you know, investments uh, in a real-time basis uh, and to really understand the impact over time and to, to look at their portfolios, really developing that whole use case and the platform that supports it is front and center on our to-do list for the new year and 2019. The next kind of t- 24 months are going to be all about that at Impact Assets. And we're really excited about it. We're attracting clients who are really excited about it. And that's we're just responding. I mean, part of it is build what people don't know they want yet. I mean, yes, okay, we're a little bit of that, but we're also really in a in a in a unique place, I think, in the market in the U.S. of having a critical mass of the Seth Goldmans of the world all in one place who want to do stuff and they want to they want to in very different ways share and discover other ideas and uh, share their ideas and discover new ideas. So building that out, the really robust depth, fluidity of that, the the the, the thrillingness and that, and the thrill the thrill word I used. I actually use technically, um, you know, this this uh, <laughs> this concept of serve and delight in marketing that you may have heard of. Yeah. We're really taking that to heart. I think the last years we've been putting in a lot of hard knocks and, and track record buildings and justifying and apologetics on impact investing and social and environmental investing, trying to create a basic service level, a basic credibility. Well, you know what, folks, we're there. Again, I think that's a theme for this conversation. It's like that part, we can set that aside. We need to keep attention to quality of product and track record and activity and exactness, even across a whole spectrum of some things being market rate and some things not being market rate, and that's fine too. But setting that aside, let's make this a really thrilling, compelling experience because that's what millennials want. That's what impact investors deserve, and we're going to we're gonna push on that, on that delight factor. And that has some real technical, I mean, you got to build, you, that doesn't just happen accidentally. You really have to capacitize that and build and support that structurally and be innovative. And so we're going to, we're going to move concertedly towards, um, towards delight, uh, while we maintain our service level. Well, fantastic, Tim. I wish you uh, the very best success with all of this and um, a delightful few years ahead. And thank you so much for taking the time today to speak to me and talk about all the great work that you're doing, explain the fast-changing marketplace, uh, the momentum uh, around impact investment and the great work that you're doing. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.